Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We saw several verses in this chapter. We're going to sort of go back to verse 7 through verse 12 today, if we have the time. A caution to, be, to the strong. A caution to the strong. I guess we well, could have called that a warning to the strong. Same thing. A caution to the strong. This is the thing you've got to understand. Paul is speaking to the Christians that understand. He's speaking to people that understand grace. He's speaking to those that have walked with God. It started back in chapter 8. When he's, these are the ones who knew that eating meat sacrificed to idols didn't hurt their standing with God. And this is the group he's addressing. He's not addressing the weak. He's not addressing the, the ones who are in and out. He's addressing the ones that are strong. And the warning is so clear. I don't know where you are this morning in your walk. But if you've been walking with God and you've been in the Word of God, then this is the group he's, he's addressing. So we need to take heart to what he's saying. The Apostle Paul wants the Corinthian believers to understand that the, living the Christian life is not a once and a while thing. No way you can play games with God. In fact, the Christian life, very much like a runner who runs a race in order to win that race. Verse 24 of chapter 9 gives us the tone of what Paul is saying. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Now certainly they knew this. This was Corinth. This is where they had the Isthmian game. So now that he's got their attention, he turns and says, Okay, he says, then run in such a way that you may win. Let your Christian life be a picture of what that runner's life from the time he starts to the time that he finishes. Be serious about your walk with God is what he's saying to them. In other words, run to win. Verse 25, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. And then he turns back to the Christian. He says, But we an imperishable. Why would we not be in the race? Why would we not be paying the price? Why would we not be denying ourselves? Because there's a reward for every believer. It's not like in the games. They only had one prize. But we run like that runner would run, knowing that all of us can receive an imperishable wreath. The Christian who has learned the discipline of denying himself. You know what that means now, don't you? That means to say yes to Jesus. You deny yourself by saying yes to Jesus. You don't have to worry about saying no to flesh. You say yes to him. And when you've said yes to him, you've just said no to your flesh. And that is the pattern of the Christian walk. If he learns to live, if he walks that way, he won't be disqualified. 
Remember Paul said in the last couple of verses of chapter 9, he says, I don't want to be disqualified. Now, he doesn't mean lose his salvation, as we've said, but what he means is I don't want to be taken out of the action. I want to be a part of what God is doing. I don't want to be sitting back watching somebody else. I want to be right there where God wants me to be. Well, in chapter 10, Paul turns to Israel as an illustration. See, what he's doing here, he, he takes them back to the Old Testament, to stories that most of them would have been familiar with, and he says, I don't want you to be disqualified. I don't want you to be cheated out of what God has for you like Israel was by your, your own choice to serve the flesh rather than Christ. That's his whole point. Matter of fact, he says in the earlier verses of chapter 10, with most of them, speaking of Israel, God was not well pleased. Well, that's an understatement. Only two was he pleased with, Joshua and Caleb, out of the whole nation of Israel. Now, Paul gets in to the problem that Israel had. And this is what he does not want the strong, those that are walking, understanding grace. He says, don't fall into this trap. Because Israel did, don't you do this. But what was the problem with Israel? Well, they craved the things of the flesh. Look at verse 6 of chapter 10. Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. Now the word crave has the idea of an intense desire for something. If I ask you a question this morning, what is the most intense desire you have in your life right now? Is it Christ? Is it His will? Is it His word? Well, if it is, hey, you're pretty much on track. But if it's anything other than that, look out. Because a desire that pulls you, it, it obsesses you, and it compels you. That's what the word desire there, crave, translated crave, means. And what did they crave? Evil things. Now, just, I'm not going to go into a study of the word kakos. It's the word that means evil. Yes, there's two words for evil. But this particular word, every time I find it, is always associated with man's flesh. And it's an antithesis to what God is and to what God wants to do. And so in other words, if we could simplify it, we could say that Israel craved after the things of the flesh. And that's the whole problem. Don't fall into that trap, he says. Don't, don't detach yourself from Christ and attach yourself to anything that's of the flesh. Israel desired those things. Now, this was very appropriate to the Corinthian believers. Remember our whole context. They were attaching themselves to everything but Christ desiring everything but him. And that was the reason for the fact that the church was upside down instead of right side up. Now, what are the symptoms of flesh craving? And that's where we are today. That's the bulk of what we're talking about. We've looked at two of them. First of all is idolatry. Look in verse 7. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now, idolatry begins when one stops trusting God. He's found something else. He's found someone else to put in God's place. At that very moment, idolatry sets in. He has gone the way of the flesh. Now, I'll tell you what, this is a subtle, subtle thing. Because sometimes we can put good things in the place where the best thing, which is God, needs to be. And sometimes it's not as clearly seen as in other times. The scripture Paul uses here in this text is a quote from Exodus chapter 32 and verse 6. It's right after Aaron has built the golden calf. It's a horrible time in the life of Israel. And as we read last week, they chose something man-made to substitute for what God was 
in their life. And this idolatrous practice that they did is likened unto immorality. Look at verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Now it's interesting how idolatry and immorality are tied together. You always see them together. Immorality is an idolatrous practice. The word is porneo. It means to prostitute oneself to another, to play the harlot. Now you have to understand this, and I almost led you astray last week, because there is a sexual undertone here, but that is not the narrow context of what Paul is using. You see, we see it, they obviously in their idolatrous practices would bring in that immorality, but that's really not what he's saying here. It's, it's the thought of immorality that helps us understand idolatry. Idolatry is when you disengage yourself to the one to whom you're betrothed. And you turn and attach yourself to someone else or something else other than Christ. Now that's idolatrous, but that's also immoral, you see. Immorality is an idolatrous act. So he's not talking about so much physical immorality, which is there, but spiritual immorality. Once a person has chosen something or someone else, it can be good, it can be a ministry, it can be a person, it can be whatever, but anything that takes the place of Christ, not only has he committed an act of idolatry, he's committed an act of immorality, a spiritual immoral act. He's prostituted himself by joining himself to anything other than Christ. You see, that's what Paul is getting at. What did he say to the church of Corinth back in chapter 1, verse 12? Let me read it for you. Remember he says, I've heard the division in your church. He tells them why. He said, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, the first pastor. I've attached myself to him. And others say, I am of Apollos, the second pastor. And others, I am Cephas, Simon Peter. And then some of them say, I am of Christ. Don't worry, they're not the right group. This is the group that if they get to heaven, is going to have a fence built around it. And Peter's going to say, shh, they think they're the only ones up here. I mean, they had the right person, <coughs> excuse me, but they had the wrong motive. And then in chapter 3, when he talks about their immaturity, and he says, when I was with you, it was okay that you were a baby. But the problem is you're still a baby. And you have never grown up. Then he says in verse 4 of that same passage, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not yet mere men? And what he's saying is, if you haven't grown, then evidently you're still living the way you were. And if you're living the way you were, that was not attached to Christ. Babies attach themselves to things they can see, touch, and feel. And that was the problem of Corinth. They had not only committed idolatry, they had committed spiritual immorality. What was the passage that he was referring to? He says in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 10, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. That's Numbers chapter 25. This is when the children of Israel went over and began to embrace the gods, false gods of Moab. Now last week when we were talking about this, I kind of led you into the fact that the immorality of the sons of Israel and the daughters of the Moabites, that took place. But that's not the predominant thought. The predominant thought is they detached themselves from God and they prostituted themselves by going with the idols of the pagan people of the Moabites. Remember Moab was the illegitimate incestuous son of Moab, I mean of Lot, and one of his daughters. And so they were avowed enemies of God. And to go after these pagan gods, the god was Baal Peor. And the gods of Baal were the permissive, idolatrous gods. Can you imagine these young Hebrew guys? And they got over there and found out, hey, I can be religious and do all this other stuff. Man, this is much better than what I learned down here. 
I remember one time, a fellow left our church for over a year. And I don't know, perhaps that fellow's still here, but I've been here 17 years, so I can't remember how long ago it's been. And you know what he said to me? He said, when I came here every time I listened in a service, I walked out feeling guilty. I walked out feeling convicted. He said, I got tired of it. And I went to another place. He said, that was a year ago. He said, I'm back and I'm broken and my family's completely gone had I stayed and listened to what God was trying to tell to me, but I didn't want that. I wanted something that let me be what I wanted to be. It's exactly what happened to Israel. They chose the gods of Baal Peor. They committed idolatry, but in the same way, they committed acts of spiritual immorality. Now, to me, that's exactly what James is talking about in James chapter 4 and verse 4. He says, you adulteresses. Can you imagine him calling the Christians adulteresses when they hadn't committed adultery? And then he qualifies it. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, and he's talking about the system of the way the world thinks and acts, of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Idolatry is when you have detached from Christ. You've attached to something other than him. And as a result of it, this has become a spiritual immoral act. You've prostituted yourself with something other than Christ. What could that be? I don't know. Maybe it's work. Let's get out of the Christian circles here. Maybe it's work. I know a lot of men, their companies begin to grow. All of a sudden, you don't see them studying their scriptures. All of a sudden, you don't see them in church. All of a sudden, they start disappearing. Disappear. Oh, we'll be back, we'll be back, we'll be back. Yeah, right. You never see them again. Because they have attached themselves to something that has so pleased their flesh. Who needs God? But I'll tell you what, there's a, there's a coming a day There's going to be a payday. And when they hit bottom, they're going to realize what they walked away from. And this is the whole point. Could it be money? Could that be what it would be? Could it be a hobby, whatever it is? <laughs> the fellow that turkey hunted <laughs> that we talked about a while ago, whatever. Flesh now has its way. Here you have an idolatrous and immoral individual, not sexually, but in the same sense, they prostituted themselves. Believers that have attached themselves to something other than Christ, his will, and his word. Now today we come to the third symptom because you know, you ask yourself the question, well, Wayne, my goodness, this is serious stuff. I don't want to commit adultery. Woo, I don't want to be in a spiritual adulteress. Is there any symptom that I can understand in my life that as a person who understands Scripture and as a person who knows grace, that I can quickly see that, that would give evidence of why I've done this? Yes. The third symptom begins to show the surface part of it, the thing that you can really see. The first two, they're sort of subtle. But the next one is very clear, and that is when one tempts or tries or tests God. Verse 9, nor let us try or test or tempt God of the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Now, there's a progression here. I can't help but see it. First of all, you choose to detach from Christ or your walk is no longer the same. You don't need Christ like you did before. You don't need his word like you did before. You've got your bank account. You've got something else. Secondly, you commit acts of spiritual immorality by the fact that you're now seen in your emotion, your time, everything's being drawn by something other than Christ. He just stands here waiting for you to come and fellowship with him, but you don't have time for him anymore. And then it begins to surface. Then you're tempting God himself. Now, to unravel this, the word try is the word 
pirazo, or test or tempt. It's the word pirazo, P-E-I-R-A-Z-O, transliterated. Pirazo predominantly is used to try, to try someone, to test someone, to prove that person unworthy or that thing unworthy, uh, that he does not measure up. Let's just say, as Bob Westcott, let's just say Bob lives in front of a creek. He has a little river running behind his house. Let's say I go over to Bob's house and I say, yeah, I think you do, yeah. I go over to Bob's house and I say, can I play in your creek, you know, because I'm a pastor and I need therapy. So I, I get out in his creek. And I'm playing around in the water and I find some gold stones, gold-looking stones. I'm thinking, oh, look at this. I found gold. And I get a whole bucket full of it and I bring some of it to Bob. I said, Bob, since it's behind your house, I'm going to give you some of this gold. And I walk away and he looks at Charity and says, Charity, he wouldn't know gold if he fell over it. This isn't gold. I'm going to put it to the test to prove that it's unworthy. Pirazzo. When you're proving something unworthy, when you're, when you're trying to see something break down because of the proof, not be held up, break down. That's the word pirazzo. Now, why would a believer, what could a believer do that would so put God to the test that would literally break down who he is? What could a believer do to tempt God that way? Well, we're gonna see. Our text is God being tried now, not man. God's being tested. I wanna show you before we get into it. I wanna show you something. First time that God is ever tested in the New Testament by anything or anyone is in Matthew chapter four, verse one. You might wanna go over and look and see who it is who has the audacity to try to disprove God, to try to break down who he is, his character, to show the doubt that this one has towards God. Look with me, Matthew chapter four and verse one. And you'll, you'll find out who he is. We probably already know the passage and know who it is. It's the devil himself. It all starts with him. He's the one who has the raw audacity to put God, the impeccable God-man, Christ, to the test, to try to disprove him, to try to break down who he really is. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And that word tempted there is pirazo, the word we're looking at. He's there to try to somehow dishonor, disqualify, break him down by the testing. Of course, you know, you have these people who say, well, he could have sinned, so his temptation's valid, but he wouldn't because he's God. Now, folks, I love, I love you, but I want to share something with you. You're looking at it wrong. The word in the Greek for test is not what we think of in English. What the devil was doing was putting him to the test to see if there was anything in him that would respond to him. Because he assumed he was mere man, but he wasn't sure. And so he put him to the test. And guess what? John says, there was nothing in him that he could draw out of him. He had a body similar to ours, but not exactly like ours. He wasn't just man. He was all God man. He was all God. He was all man. And you can't start separating that. You do. Your theology is going to go right down the drain that started that kind of thinking. The devil didn't know what he was going to do. Boy, he found out. Boy, you go back to the book of Genesis. God created a man, and then Satan would raise up a man. And then God would raise up a man, and then Satan would raise up a man. God would raise up like a chess game. And it came down to Malachi, and all of a sudden there was a, a, a lull. 400 years of silence, as if God was contemplating his next move. He already knew what his next move was. He knew that when the first man was created. And then all of a sudden, Jesus came on the scene. God didn't create a man. God didn't raise up a man. God became a man. And the devil said, uh-oh. 
All of a sudden, the rules have changed. But you see, he had to be sure. He tried to kill the firstborn under Herod. Although I think that's why Cain killed Abel. I believe Satan got a hold of him and he thought that Abel was gonna be that man because the promise came all the way back in Genesis chapter three. But now he knows he's got trouble on his hand because you see, Jesus has been tested and could not be disproved, could not be broken down as the test was intended to do. Instead, he was affirmed to be who he was. See, it's the nature of the devil and the mark that the devil has made on us is our flesh. And it's the nature of our flesh to disprove, to tempt, and to test God. To try to pull him, break him down in our testing. So when someone tempts or tries God, he has already adulterated his relationship with God in the progression here. He's already committed acts of spiritual immorality. And now by doing all of this, he has put God in a position to where by his lifestyle, he is seeking to disprove the very character of who God really is. How do we know we have come this far? Paul helps us by the example that he gives. Now folks, I wanna tell you, we preach verse by verse, do we not? <laughs> I don't originate these messages, they come right up out of the scriptures themselves. If anybody nails me with an agenda this morning, you need to deal with God about it. I'm just dealing with the next verse. What is the key of knowing that you have disengaged yourself from God, committed spiritual acts of immorality, and by your very lifestyle have tempted and tried God himself. I'll tell you what it is. It's when you doubt the leadership that God has sovereignly placed over you. Now he's speaking to the church of Corinth. He's an apostle. And he's speaking to men who understand grace but aren't living up under it. And his whole point is, Israel made a huge mistake. Look where he takes them. Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4. This gets a little tough to preach because it sounds like it's an agenda. And I've asked God to please erase that from your mind. I'm just going verse by verse. But I want to tell you, folks, this overwhelmed me. Look at verse 4, Numbers 21. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Remember, the Edomites would not allow them to come in. That's why God's going to, I believe, going to use Petra to protect his people in the last days. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Now look here. The people. Who are the people? The Israelites. Who are their leaders? Moses. And then, of course, he's following God. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now look at this. For there's no food and no water. Yes, there was. There was quail and manna. But then it says, and we loathe this miserable food. Now, what are they doing? By what they said of their leader, Moses, it showed that they had placed themselves into a position that knew more than God knew. They didn't like the position they were in. That's, it has to be Moses' fault. They don't like the food that they're eating. They loathe it. So we don't have any food, they said. You see, the attitude towards spiritual authority in your life, towards leaders that God has appointed, directly reflects how you're walking with God, whether or not you're idolatrous or spiritually immoral. They showed that they distrusted his motive. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, they said. By saying this, they were showing in their hearts they didn't trust his leadership, but they also did not trust his supply. Why do we not have any food? They just didn't trust Moses, and by saying that, they were saying they didn't trust God. In all of this, you see, if that had been God, they would have changed the menu. And if that had been God, they would have changed the schedule. 
But God didn't. And by what they said about their leaders, it reflected an attitude of their heart. Remember who he's talking about? Those who've experienced God. Those who've walked with God. That's the ones who put themselves in the pride position of saying they don't need God. Now this must be seen. They were tempting God. It was in their distrust. Why do you think a woman will not submit to her husband? Why do you think? Where does that come from? What's the root of that attitude? I'll tell you what the root of the attitude is. The root is idolatry. Because she doesn't believe God when God's word says for her to do it. Because if she was God, she wouldn't do it. And after all, this is the 20th century. Why does a man not submit to the leadership God has put over him? Because he's the same way. We have a better idea. We're living in a day when people don't respect authority that God has placed over them. It is that he has chosen, people have chosen not to trust God. Matter of fact, in our text, God judged them with the serpent. In Numbers 21 and verse 6, the Lord, boy, he was grieved. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. I asked myself the question, why, why did he send serpents? I don't know. I, I have to be quick to answer that. But I, but I have something for you to chew on. Who was the first one who took the form of a serpent that came and tempted Eve to be unsubjective to her husband but also to God? Who was the first one? That was the devil himself. And it's almost like God said, you want serpents? Do you want to buy into what the serpent has told you? Do you want to live rebellious thinking you know more than God and the leaders he's picked? Then you can have what you want. All the serpents you want. And the destruction that comes when we show we do not trust the sovereignty of God by bellyaching about our, our leadership, by bellyaching about the circumstances God has put into our life is incredible. And that convicted the stew out of me. And I'll tell you what, folks, I wanted to look in some other area, but God says, no, sir, you look right here. Man, how many times I have told the jokes about Clinton, and I'm going to have to probably ask him before it's over with for forgiveness. God raises up kings. God establishes kingdoms. We in America think we know more than God knows. We don't know what's going on in America. We don't know what God's trying to do in our nation. Yet we bellyache and gripe. And I'll tell you what, folks, that attitude out there has carried right inside the church of Jesus Christ. I was in 38 churches last year, and in almost every one that I was in, I picked up a pastor who was beat to death by people who would not respect the position God had put him in. And yet they were the first people to quote scripture when you talk to them. That's what Paul is, Paul is saying. And he's saying to the people that don't know scripture, to the people that are learned, to the people that know grace, understand something. You better live what you know. Which means the only way you're going to experience grace is by faith. And the only way you're going to live by faith is to trust God. Which means if you're trusting him, you can bear up under any circumstance and leadership you ever have to deal with. And if you distrust leadership, period, that's idolatry. And that is spiritual immorality. Good gracious sakes alive. I have been skint alive in this passage. I'm the first person to be verbal when something like that comes up. The author of Hebrews says something interesting to the believers. He says, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders. <laughs> obey your leaders. What the word obey is? Pitho. 
know what the word means? We don't like it because it's 20th century. We don't talk about stuff like this. It means to allow yourself to be persuaded by the people God has put over you because it's the position. It's not the person. You're trusting God in the person, not just the person. If you're living trusting God, you can live under any leadership whatsoever. Do you realize that Aaron built the golden calf and God made him the first high priest of Israel? <laughs> well, God, you don't have very many characteristics here. You see, God put him there. Why? I don't know. You have to ask him. But the people continuously complained against the leadership God had given them. And these were the very ones that experienced his provision, his protection, his, 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 his presence, his power. They all experienced it. Because they had experienced it, I guess they thought they were a little more arrogant. Just like the Corinthian church had done the same thing. And he said, you learned people, you people that have been in the Word all of your life, you could be the very problem of what's going on because you're not living up under what you're telling others to live. You're not living what you say. Well, to the strong believer who understands grace, his, step, his downfall comes when he chooses not to trust God but his own flesh. Then he prostitutes himself. He attaches himself to whatever it is that takes God's place. Then this surfaces in his distrust of the motives and of the direction of leaders God has put over him. You say, well, Wayne, my goodness gracious, son, this is hard. I don't want to be an idolater. I don't want to be an immoral person in the spiritual sense. I don't want to be that. I don't want to distrust leadership. How can I know that I'm distrusting it? How can I know that what I'm saying is not something that could be good in the long run? Hey, he doesn't leave any questions unanswered here. Here it comes on the next one. Fourth thing. All of progression. Idolatry, immorality, that's spiritual immorality. Then you have distrust of leadership. You try God. You're actually testing or tempting God when you're not willing to trust the leaders that God has put over you. But the way you know that it's there is in the fourth thing. Grumbling. Gosh, let's just close it up and go home, will you? <laughs> this thing eats my lunch. Now, hey, didn't James say it? James says, hey, you want to find out where you are? Listen to what you're saying. Listen to what you're saying. Listen to what you're saying. How do you know that you distrust the people God's put over you? <laughs> gracious. The true outward symptom of the idolatrous heart is what they see in, is in this grumbling. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now the word grumble is, a, is an interesting word to me. It's, it's, a, it's a word that comes out of a sound. And the sound is, when, have you ever seen somebody that didn't like something, your children, that didn't like your authority over them? And they're getting together and they're walking away, but they're not going to say it loud enough for you to hear it, but they are murmuring under their breath, buddy. You know what they're saying. You know why? Because when you were a kid, you said the same thing. That's how you know what they're saying. What are they doing? They don't want to be caught. But this is a grumbling. This is a murmuring. It's a muttering under the breath of discontent and of, and of questioning the very character even, as they did Moses, the very character of the leader. That's where it comes from. It has the idea of complaining, complaining, complaining. Boy, I'll tell you one thing. If I was in that position, this is what I would do. There you go. What, Romans 12, 3? After the great message of grace for 11 chapters, Paul says, I say this by the grace of God, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Boy, do we love to climb up on that 
barbershop pedestal when we've got the floor, how we would do it if it was us. You see, a person who's become idolatrous is already detached, and he's attached to something now outside of Christ. And it may be a good thing. This is why this is so subtle. And now, by his very lifestyle, he, he questions the very character of God by not trusting the leaders God has sovereignly put over him. And it comes out in the grumbling and the murmuring. Now you're saying, oh, wait, how, are you reading into that? Well, I don't think so. If you look at Numbers 16, 32 through 35, there's your scripture reference. He's as clear as a bell on this thing. And the, you see, you can discuss what testing is, but then you've got to take it to the narrow part of the context we're dealing with. Just like here, the murmuring. What is he talking about? Let's go. Numbers 16, 32 through 35. A terrible thing happened. Now listen, amongst the leadership of Israel, this is Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and the three of them set up a rebellion against Moses, their leader. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been in a church to where people thought of themselves biblically in other ways, more qualified than they really were, took the reins in their own hands, and were the instigators of a rebellion against an authority God had placed? Raise your hand if anybody besides myself has ever been there, because I've been the result of it. Yeah, most of you have. And those of you who didn't raise your hand, I understand. You really wanted to, but you just decided not to. Number 16, verse 32. Here's what, here's what God did when they rebelled. Boy, you're talking about taking it seriously? God killed them. Not just those three, but all of them uh, that were with them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, I guess like an earthquake. And their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, the earth may swallow us up. In verse 35, fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Now, God severely judged Israel because of a rebellion that came up against Moses. But not, this is not the point. That's, that's the context. Here's the point. Go over to verse 41 and see how Israel handled it. After it's all said and done, after the dust has finally settled, verse 41 of Numbers 16. But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. <laughs> now, I understand it's convenient to blame the one who's in the leadership, and that's part of the turf he has to expect, whoever it is. If it's the president, if it's the husband of the, of the family, or whoever it is, they have to expect that because that's going to always be the easiest thing for the flesh to cop out and do. Blame the one that's the most recognizable. And so they turned it against Moses and Aaron. You see all this fits? The grumbling attitudes, they couldn't even accept the righteous character of God to do something like that. They rather blamed Moses and Aaron. Well, grumbling is a dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will for our lives and the lives of others. It shows idolatry. It evidences spiritual immorality. It is an act of tempting God. It is a sin that God does not take lightly. Matter of fact, now think about this. When we grumble and we complain against the leadership God's put on us wherever we are, then here's what happens. We question God's wisdom, God's grace, God's goodness, God's love, God's righteousness and the God's sovereignty that's over us. But when we learn to be content, then this brings honor and glory back to him that we trust. That's the key. 
The attitude and what you do with the attitude has everything to do with praise and what praise is. I want to tell you something. Many times we come to this building, perhaps, or, or wherever, and we praise God, and we think, think He accepts our praise. Be careful. If your lips that have criticized during the week and grumble are the same lips and have not dealt with it that come into church and then seek to praise God, do you realize that's what James also says? How can bitter water and sweet water come out of the same fountain? Something's amiss here. You see, it's telling us, perhaps, where we are. Well, you don't find Paul grumbling, do you, even though it's pagan authorities over him. I love what he says in Ephesians 3 when he was put into prison over a false accusation. He says, here I am, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I love that. I'm not a prisoner of the Jews, I'm not a prisoner of the Romans, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. And then he says in Philippians in the same imprisonment in verse 11, not that I speak for want, but I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I found myself. And these are pagan people that have done him wrong for five years at least of his life. And then right before he dies, all you hear him say to Timothy, Timothy, I'm lonely. We come see me, man, I'm cold. We bring my coat. I'm bored. Will you bring me my books? Man, I can't wait to go on and be with the Lord and get the reward that he has given to me. I want to tell you, folks, that's the way to live. But how many of us want to take the matter in our own hands? We know more than the leadership. I mean, can you realize the rednecks God's put over us? Good grief. I know, do you know who we're talking about? And God says, uh-oh, what do I hear here? What's going on here? Who thought of himself more highly than he ought to think to make that kind of statement? Remember, he speaks to those who are the learned, to those who have understood. Well, one of these four areas. I wonder where we are this morning. I don't like this message because it ate my lunch. I, if you're getting a little pain out of it, good. I'm glad we can all share it together. <laughs> Because, I mean, it just nails the flesh right to the wall. Hey, anybody walk out of here and say, oh, he had an agenda. <laughs> you better check with God because I didn't write this thing. It's right there. Where are you found? Idolatry, spiritual immorality, which is basically tempting God, doubting his very character, breaking him down by the way that you live. Grumbling, which is muttering your discontent for others. Then verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. It was for us, Israel, all that happened to them is supposed to be a lesson for us that live in the last days. Well, finally, and we're through, what is the principle that Paul wanted them and us to know? Now watch this, verse 12. Therefore, and he goes back to his audience that he began in verse 8, verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I love this because all of us have to deal with it. The word thinks, dokeo, here's what it means. I wrote it down. It expresses the subjective mental estimate or opinion formed by man concerning a matter. In other words, I've come to the conclusion about myself. Yes, I know how to handle the Greek. I know the word. I've been on mission trips. God, I stand and nobody can move me. That's the whole attitude. That's that cocky, arrogant, which happened in Corinth. Exactly what happened in Corinth. Matter of fact, the word arrogant is a spiritual airbag. Watch this. It's in the present active participle. This is the way he thinks. I mean, this is a lifestyle. This is his whole opinion of himself. Watch this. He has formed the opinion that he stands. The word stands east of me. It means stand immovable. I've placed myself here. God, you're so lucky to have me on your side. I know you just daily say, whoa, way to go, Wayne. Way to go, son. You're helping me out. 
That's the attitude. And he says, buddy, you better be careful when you think you stand. When this is your opinion of yourself, lest you fall. You know what the word fall is? Peepto. Peepto, yeah, it means fall, but it has more of the idea of doop, trip. It's kind of like, I, I don't know what's happening to me. I think I'm falling apart. I, I have fallen more in the last three or four months. I don't know what's happening to me. I'm equilibrium or something. I sat at the mall. You know, I fell off the steps over here in the foyer. <laughs> I was so grateful nobody was there. I mean, great was the fall. I think that was the only news that night, a seven point on the Richter scale. I was out at the mall checking a thing on my phone and I walked out and there was the curb. You know, they've had the curb there forever, but they've moved the, the entrance out about another 30 feet. So why am I looking for the curb back here? Because you can't drive a car through there. That's the entrance way. I'm not looking for the curb. They haven't taken it out yet. I walked out and that thing must be 15 feet high. And I walked out and I went, <laughs> man, I missed that sucker and fell good night. And I hurt myself, mostly my pride, but I did, I did hurt myself. And I got up and this guy said, you okay? Yeah, yeah, fine, yeah. <laughs> Did you see the Bulls game the other night? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> Man, it wounded my pride. <laughs> That's what Pepto is. You don't plan this kind of stuff. I mean, hey, he's speaking to people that they would never in a million years sit down on Monday and plan to fall on, on Thursday. The same word used in James. Count it all joy, brother, when you fall into various temptations. You don't plan a trial. You don't plan to stumble into this. That's why Paul is warning them. He says, just because you understand grace doesn't mean you're living up under it. And you could be the culprit of the whole problem. It's in your attitude towards the leaders God has put over you. Well, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The word take heed, blepo, means to look and to see. It means keep your eyes open at all times because you that are learned, you, you, the, the strong ones, you're the ones that better watch it. The weak ones, they've already stumbled. You're there to help them. But when you stumble, the whole thing comes tumbling down. Well, he warns them. Run with aim, he would say in chapter nine. Stay in bounds. Keep your focus and your focus is Christ. Now, you say, Wayne, you're not balancing this message. Well, hey, did Paul balance it? I'm just telling you the way he told it. Yeah, we know there's grace. We know there's mercy. We know there's forgiveness. That's not his point. That comes later on. He's got a point right here, and his point is to those who understand or are strong, have experienced God. Watch out that spiritual pride does not take you into a position of making you think you're more highly than you ought to think, and you start questioning the very people God's put over you as if you could do it better. Uh, Wayne, have you ever had to deal with that? Oh, no, no. <laughs> You're kidding. Let me tell you an illustration about my life. I'm the hardest head in this whole, whole room. If, if I can be helped, anybody can be helped. Years ago, I went into the, I came out of this, I was a staff member for years in, in youth and recreation. <laughs> and uh, that was my 40 years with the sheep. Moses thinks he had it hard. He just hadn't served in the youth recreation area for 15 years. And I've went, moved into being associate pastor, still in charge of youth, but more with pastoral duties. And I was with a fella that's a dear friend of mine. He would laugh at me saying this, but he, I played ball with him in college. Now, he got all the technical fouls. I never got any technical fouls in college. He did, always mouthing off the referee. And five years, I'm older than he is, five years older than he is. Son, you're talking about, he made me fill out a thing every Friday of the people I'd visit and, and call them back on Saturday to see if they're going to join on Sunday. 
Never been under the gun like that in my, I called him the dump truck. He just dumped everything on me. He didn't want to. One day he walked him off. I developed an attitude towards him. An attitude that says, big boy, if you just move over, I think I can handle this a whole lot better than you're doing it. One day he walked in my office to show you how God works. And he said, Wayne, and you don't know my this individual, but he said, Wayne, he said, you know that meeting you were going to do at First Baptist Church, Holly Springs, Mississippi? And I said, yes. He said, four weeks from now. I said, yes. He said, you can't do it. I said, what? It's been booked for a year and a half. How do you cancel something four weeks away? He said, I'm telling you, you can't do it. And I'm thinking to myself, who told you? Smart aleck. Been praying about it. I'm thinking, yeah, right. Makes a lot of sense. He walked out of my office, and I'm telling you, if we'd had a fight, I'd have whipped him. I'm bigger than he is. I didn't say anything to him. Left it alone. Buddy, when he walked out of the door, I could have kicked the desk through the window. I was so upset. I mean, I was livid inside. You've been that way recently? When an authority said something to you that you didn't like and you questioned him, even to the point of questioning God. I did. If you hadn't been there, let me tell you what it's like. It's miserable. I went home and Diana, I'm so grateful Diana's in my life. <laughs> she's got crowns, good. Nice, she don't even know about How She's kept me out of prison probably all these years, much less anything else. <laughs> Miss Mercy, mother of the world, she sat out with me and just tried to help me get my head straight. And finally, it began to dawn on me through truth, truth that I'd already understood but wasn't living out. It dawned on me what was happening. And I got before God. And I want to tell you, I so purified my heart, God did, and changed my attitude that I wrote a letter to First Baptist Church, Holly Springs, Mississippi. And that letter did said nothing in it at all that would it ever make my pastor look as if he was like I thought he was when he told me. <sighs> kind of died down. Four weeks later, on the day I was supposed to start the camp, we were in the hospital in Jackson. And uh, that was the day by C-section they took our little Patricia Marie. People say, do you have any children? You have one. I have three. I we have one in heaven. God just said, you got such an ugly daddy. I'm going to take you right on up here to be with me. Little Patricia Marie Dinah carried her full term. They took her that day. She had died. That Friday that I was supposed to finish it, we stood in a gravesite and listened to my friend who told me I couldn't go. Pray over our family and read scripture. And a little while later, I was sitting in my study looking at something else, and God brought this back to my mind. He said, Wayne, I knew about Patricia Marie back here, but son, your attitude towards leadership over you stinks. And I had to put you to the test to see if you were really going to honor me. I could have done it a different way. But it was a test to see where you were in your walk with me. You know, folks, that's what Paul's trying to say. How are we going to be sensitive to the weaker brother if we're not even going to live up under what we say we understand? And it all directly reflects on how we view leadership God has put over us. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 